when I hear that we need to lay off everybody in the oil and gas industry so that they can go to Arizona and make solar panels, and that's going to be the new job of the future, the green job, that's disturbing to me because I believe that the existing workforce and the talent and the capabilities that exist in the existing workforce are indispensable to make this transition. But these people need to be educated and integrated into the energy transition. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Welcome into episode 49. Yes, that's right. We are one episode away from the big 5-0, and we continue to roll along here at the Green Insider Podcast. Again, this has been a labor of love over the last 9, 12 months uh, here at eRenewable, going through the pandemic, going through everything that you know all you folks have gone through out there as well through these challenging times. You know, Listen, the, the Green Insider, Mike, Mike Niemer and myself, have continued to try to put out uh, great information. We've had some great guests along the way, and of course, episode 49 does not disappoint as well. We welcome to the program Charles McConnell, Executive Director for Carbon Management and Energy Sustainability over at the University of Houston. It's center that they've had in place now for a few years over there and the work they're doing and uh, he's got a great announcement that he's going to make uh, during the podcast towards the end of it you definitely want to don't want to miss that uh, just talking about what a, a an award they just received uh, for the work they're doing over at U of H and again we're very excited about having Charles McConnell on a 35 year energy veteran some great insight on uh, what he and his team are doing over at U of H as well as just his thoughts on what's going on right now with the energy transition here in the United States states of america but before we get to that let's welcome to the program the aforementioned ceo and founder of e-renewable mr mike niemer to tell you what we do here at e-renewable hi mike niemer here president and ceo of e-renewable at e-renewable we bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both ppas and vppas our electronic management tool helps streamline the rp process whether you are a buyer or a seller of wind, solar, or battery storage, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Additionally, we help customers with microgrid or battery storage development, renewable natural gas by turning waste energy, LED lighting and HVAC efficiency upgrades, unbundled RECs, and provide energy advisory services to our customers. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at one 866 renew one as always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. Of course, you can check out the website, eRenew.net. Give us a follow on Twitter as well as Instagram, eRenew2020. And then, of course, you can always follow us as well, at Mike underscore Niemer and at the Freddie D. And, of course, we'd be remiss to not give us a follow on LinkedIn. Give us a follow on our company page and connect with myself and Mike. Of course, it's time, as always, for the Name of News Minute and a very bittersweet edition this week. Uh, Executive Director of NEMA, Steve Shepard, with a very special announcement on this week's NEMA News Minute. You do not want to miss it. Here is Steve Shepard. Hi, Fred. This is Steve Shepard, Executive Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. Thanks again for the opportunity to provide another NEMA update for the Green Insiders listeners. NEMA is pleased to announce that Global Energy Generation is NEMA's newest market member. Global Energy is a developer of utility-scale renewable energy projects with a significant international presence. Their contact information is available under the Members section at NEMA's website. It's always a pleasure to welcome new members on board. If any of the Green Insiders listeners are interested in NEMA membership, please go to the Members section of NEMA's website for more information. Remember to save the date for NEMA's 2021 Fall Conference, hosted by Customized Energy Solutions, on October 4th through the 6th at the Logan Hotel in Philadelphia. Registration won't be open until July, but we're already hearing a lot of enthusiasm for getting back together with friends and colleagues. Sponsorship at the conference is a great opportunity for expanding your brand visibility, increasing goodwill, and supporting NEMA. If your company is interested in a sponsorship, please contact either Donna Foy or me, and we'll get you set up. 
Most importantly, save the date so we can see you in Philadelphia on October 4th through 6th. Next up in NAMA's virtual presentation series is NERC's 2021 Summer Assessment by John Murrah, Director of Reliability Assessment and Performance Analysis, and Mark Olson, Manager of Reliability Assessments from NERC. The presentation will be on Wednesday, June 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. NERC's assessment highlights potentially concerning energy shortfalls this summer and suggests the pace of transition to a more decarbonized, distributed, and digitized power system may threaten reliability. Lastly, I have announced my plans to retire from the executive director position at the end of the year. NEMA's Board of Directors has initiated a search for qualified candidates and would like to identify and seat a new executive director prior to NEMA's 2021 fall conference. The executive director is the chief operating officer of NEMA and reports to a 12-person board elected by NEMA members. The executive director manages the day-to-day operating and business affairs of NEMA and directs the activities prescribed by the board. Qualified candidates should have extensive experience and personal contacts within the energy marketing industry, recognize and promote the value of business relationships in energy marketing, and professionally balance the competing interests of a diverse membership base. Please refer to NAMA's website, NAMA.com, for more detailed information. To apply for this position, please send your resume to me at sshepherd at NAMA.com. Resumes received through June 30th, 2021 will be considered. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another update soon. Thanks, Fred. Thank you so much for that once again, Steve. And again, Steve Shepard has been absolutely phenomenal over at NEMA. We've had a great relationship with him. Uh, you can check out one of the episodes we've had with him. And, we'll, of course, we'll have him on next week talking a little bit about what he's done at NEMA and what they're looking for in his successor. So without further ado, let's welcome to the program Mr. Charles McConnell. Once again, 35-year veteran in the energy business, three years over at U of H. And, again, he's going to get into a little bit of everything, uh, as only Charles can, talking about what's going to be needed as we look into the energy transition, how it's going to take, once again, all of the fuels making this thing possible, as well as carbon neutrality, net zero, company's ambitions, nation's ambitions, exactly what's behind it, as well as the feasibility in making it happen, as well as what the United States can do in leading the world in this sustainable push. And then finally, why Charles is so excited in this 35 years. I mean, listen, this guy's done everything from private sector to the academic world and, of course, spent two years as Assistant Secretary of Energy for the Obama administration. So there's not a lot this guy hasn't seen or done in his 35 years. And with all that said, why right now is maybe the most exciting time in his 35 years in the energy business. This is a fascinating listen. You will not be disappointed. So without further ado, Please welcome and enjoy Mr. Charles McConnell. I spent 35 years in industry, most of that time with Praxair, uh, doing industrial gases around the world. I spent a couple of years at the Patel Institute, uh, running the, uh, the activities there that were associated with the national laboratories, as well as the regional sequestration partnerships. I was asked to go to uh, Washington and served uh, two years as the Assistant Secretary of Energy in the Obama administration. was responsible for fossil energy, oil and gas, coal, petrochemicals, as well as the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then after that, came back to Houston, and I'm a university guy now, and do a fair amount of external consulting as well. That center is designed to coordinate with the external community of oil and gas, petrochemicals, electric power, manufacturing, all of the different industries, and actually all the stakeholders uh, in the marketplace that are concerned about the energy transition. Just being able to provide energy in a lower carbon world, pretty simple, but very challenging. And and what what the external world wanted from the university was a place to go so that they could have access to all the capabilities within the university, not have to go from department to department looking for one particular faculty person, but actually having a place to go, kind of a concierge, if you will. And so science, engineering, law, business, policy, all of those issues in all those different fields of activity falling under the umbrella of the center and the participating faculty there to provide uh, capabilities to the marketplace. But we also make a strong point to do 
a lot of external collaborations as well with other universities, the Department of Energy, the Southern States Energy Board, et cetera. We hear about net zero and carbon neutrality. For the folks at home, explain exactly in layman's term, what does that mean? And in your estimation, and after 35 years in this industry, how realistic are the goals that are being set right now for carbon neutrality? Under the umbrella of both of those terms that you just used, I would say that the other words that are often used are the energy transition. What does that really mean? And I think the elements of it are in the, the two things that you just mentioned. First of all, let, let's talk about net zero. Uh, when a company or an enterprise uh, says that it's going to be net zero, the aspirational target is to be able to reduce the amount of carbon emissions and actually the effects that that enterprise has on the marketplace to a point where if you take everything coming in and everything going out, the ability to actually impact the environment from a carbon neutral standpoint, which is really where the other term comes in, you're able to actually create a balance in terms of the raw materials you consume, the processes that you're operating, and the products that you're providing to the marketplace. Now, what I would say today is many companies have declared themselves to be net zero by 2050. Heck, you've even got the entire country of China saying it's going to be net zero by 2060. Okay. And so this, this may give you a little indication of where I might go with this answer in terms of how realistic it is, but but let's stick with the fundamentals short term. Many companies know that their process activities have certain carbon dioxide emissions. They actually consume raw materials that have a certain carbon intensity in terms of the, the, the production processes, the, 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 the goods and services that they need to consume to actually produce their products. And so many companies are making a concerted effort to do technologies, to do work processes, to do process intensification or actually redesign to, to lower that carbon footprint dramatically. Those are often referred to as scope one emissions. And most enterprises have defined their pathway toward net zero as scope one scope two, scope three. Scope one is pretty well defined in terms of what they do today and how they can impact it. Deploying certain technologies, perhaps buying renewable electricity rather than electricity coming from something that's carbon intensive, as an example, okay? And so, you know, enterprises do their calculations and they have a roadmap where they look at these scope one emissions and they address them. If you begin to look now at scope two emissions, you're really talking about another level of the ability to impact emissions. And that's sort of the give and take between things like what employees do and, and how they impact with, uh, with different aspects of the process, the manner in which the, 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 the products are actually produced. I'll give you a great example in the oil and gas industry. Now, one of the major metrics is the carbon intensity of the crude oil that one would be exploring for and ultimately producing. And you might say, well, what does that mean? Well, many crudes have an incredible amount of energy that you need to put into the formation to get the hydrocarbon out. That makes it a more carbon intensive oil than one where if you just punch a hole in the ground and it comes up naturally, you have a much lower carbon footprint. That's just an example of the fact that carbon intensity of different feedstocks and products and everything else are now being looked at like never before. And I would say that people have generally an idea what those scope two emissions might look like. But to really get to net zero, to really get to carbon neutrality, you have to have a real understanding of where your products end up. 
if it ends up in an internal combustion engine of an automobile, if it ends up in some sort of a process that's producing chemicals, whatever, it's that tangential next step where your, your product is going into someone else's production and you're generating more products. And there's this scope three kind of chain that's established in the marketplace that I would say largely today is not defined well. I think it's, it's a realistic expectation that people are putting out aspirational targets for 2050 and 2060 to get to net zero. They have a pretty good idea how they're gonna do scope one. They have little less of a pretty good idea about how to do scope two. And I would say largely most people don't have a clue how they're gonna do scope three. But they've made the declaration, they're aspirationally going that direction. And I think it's largely because shareholders, investors, the marketplace, and many of the customers are demanding this of industry like they've never done before. So I don't believe this is all necessarily compliance driven. The Paris Climate Accord and the EPA, there's a lot of conversation about that and cl clearly that's in play. But I think the bigger issue here is the marketplace is speaking. The next generation is speaking. They're saying we want we want more energy. We don't want it to cost any more. <laughs> we want it to be abundant and ubiquitous, right? But we also want lower carbon. And therein lies the challenge of this carbon neutrality because if we were simply stop using a lot of energy, we could get to carbon neutrality a lot faster. But frankly, guys, that ain't going to happen. Okay, We're, We have a much, much stronger demand for energy going forward and, and likely 50, 60, 70 percent more energy over the next 50 years globally that's going to be consumed. So that's what makes this so difficult is that we're not planning on conserving so we can lower our emissions. I believe that people want magic. They want the magic of technology. They don't want to be inconvenienced and they don't want to pay a nickel more. And so it's, it's that easy, guys, right? And that's what makes it so hard. When somebody is attempting to achieve their scope one, two, or three, do the different things that they do, different attributes that they're trying to bring in, have a score? How do you know when you achieved your scope one? Is everything scored or is it just a perception of a score? When somebody converts some of their natural gas to renewable natural gas, is there a score tied to that that says, hey, instead of using the old fashioned gas coming out of the ground, we're using renewable natural gas. Can you kind of put that in elementary terms so the listener can maybe understand how you achieve that carbon neutrality? Is it based on a score or is it just figment of somebody's imagination and they pull the trigger and say, okay, we're through scope one? Let me answer your question by saying it's not as bad as a figment of somebody's imagination. Okay, and that's good. <laughs> and it's not as good as a rigorous scorecard that everybody understands completely. Uh, and let me be a little bit more specific. If you look at global scorecards that are out there, and there's a bunch of them, there's at least a dozen different scorecards around the world, often under the umbrella of ESG, environmental and social governance. And there's scoring that goes on around the world. And a lot of that scoring is actually developed by investment houses in places like Europe and other places around the world. And they're scoring these different investment opportunities and companies based upon how they see their movement in ESG. Some of that's carbon footprinting, but it has a lot of other things. There's about 17 different elements to a, a scorecard in many of these ESG. And so I, I'd say that we have to remind ourselves that when we turn the clock back, let's say 40 years, and we decided we wanted to take sulfur out of gasoline, and we wanted to take NOx and SOx out of the stacks of coal-fired power plants and natural gas facilities in our country, we put in technology standards, 
best available control technology, we put a marker on the board in terms of how the performance of those units would actually need to be to comply. And then over time, we matured in terms of our understanding of how to make that happen, the scoring, the record keeping, and all of that kind of stuff. I would say today it's, it's part of business as usual. All of this ESG carbon footprinting is pretty new if you get if you really get down to it. And so much of the definition is occurring as we speak. It's done through leadership, consortias of companies that are getting together, the leading companies that are out there. But I will tell you, there is no singular face to the oil and gas industry or the petrochemical industry or frankly, the electric power industry. I mean, they all they all operate as, as a unit in terms of how you look at them, but I guess the performance in each of those areas, a lot of times driven by the companies. Now you have scoring mechanisms here in our country. I'm sure you're familiar with the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting scorecard. It's something that many companies actually spend quite a bit of time performing against. But the biggest thing you can do as a company is to make sure you have a relationship with those that are doing the scoring so you can actually educate them on what you're doing. Because you sure don't want them trying to figure out what they think you're doing because they'll probably won't get it right. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of iteration that goes into this that's, that's really challenging to the point that you're making. So again, it's not as bad or as good as the way you framed it. It's kind of it's it's evolving and it's moving along in that direction. And of course, you've got places in the world, European companies are are very rigorous about this. In, in some ways, I think they're trying to create the illusion of precision in terms of the way they proceed and, and try to get this. But but they're they're really out in front. Many U.S. companies coming behind. Then you've got places in the world like China and Indonesia and South America and Africa, frankly, even the Middle East. If you look at the scoring mechanisms, of many of those national energy companies around the rest of the world, you'll find they're way behind. And the amount of emissions and the amount of impact to the environmental footprint globally is far greater in Asia, Africa and South America than it is in the United States or Europe. And when you have countries like Norway that are leading the world in carbon management, you have to kind of sit back and wonder, they don't even have any emissions in Norway pretty much, right? So it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting how you look at the rest of the world and you see where that greatest impact's going to come from. I happen to believe that's why it's so important that in our country, as we define leadership, we need to develop technologies that can ultimately be placed other places in the world. That's our opportunity to have global impact. It's also our opportunity to export our know-how, our technology, our capabilities. This is, this is what the rest of the world wants from us. They don't want politicians showing up shaming them and telling them to stop doing what they're doing. I mean, a lot of the people in those countries don't even have any energy for Christ's sakes, right? So what, what they're looking for is for us to show up with solutions, not pontificate about behavior. And that's, I think that's a real big part of also, I think what a lot of people in this country need to get their head wrapped around. And, and it's why U.S. companies have to continue to provide that kind of leadership, because I think it's a business opportunity as much as it is an environmental opportunity. What in your mind has helped with this sea change suddenly of renewables? Let's put things in context for a second. When people use the terminology that you just used, it's a little bit frightening to me. Okay. The, the sea change is enormous. The percentage is, and the advancement of wind and solar is unprecedented in the history of the world. But let's stop for a second and recognize that obviously we've got electric vehicles that people are talking about, all this stuff. Electric vehicles have been around since before 1900. 
windmills were in the world when Christ walked the earth, okay? So let, let's not think about this as the transformational technologies par excellent, okay? It's kind of where we're going and it's part of the process going forward. But we keep reminding ourselves here at the University of Houston and for all of the folks that are in our carbon management center, this is about a race to lower carbon emissions. It's not a race to deploy renewable technologies. Those are two different lenses and people need to keep their eye on the ball, which is emissions reduction, not putting in more windmills and putting in more solar panels and then trying to figure out how to balance a grid, make it reliable and have it still be cost effective and affordable. And I think we're running into that problem rapidly. Whereas by the way, let's remind ourselves that the renewables of wind and solar contribute about 5% of the total amount of energy in the world today. And this is after all that sea change transformation that you just talked about, okay? So let, let's get our head wrapped around where we really are today and the ability to actually go forward. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, electrification is a big part of our future. So is wind and solar. That's absolutely part of our future. But also part of our future is the fact that we have to put in decarbonization technologies for hydrocarbon processes. It's not the fuel and the technology that's the evil thing, it's the emissions. So if you look at it that way and think about the technologies that can be placed into these types of things, such as the hydrogen economy, carbon capture, utilization and storage, decarbonization of the, of the uh, utilities grid isn't just more wind and solar, but it's actually putting natural gas facilities in the mix that can provide baseload power, but decarbonizing those facilities with carbon capture, utilization, storage. You're still gonna need baseload power. The world is not gonna exist on intermittent power. And all these people that talk about how much batteries are gonna come into play. Batteries are good for a minute or an hour or maybe a couple of hours. But batteries aren't good for two or three days. Batteries don't do you any good for the kind of scope that we're talking about to actually run a global type of a solid electricity grid. So the electricity grid will be the first target. And there's no doubt about it. There'll be more wind and solar that'll come into this grid, but also mindful planning around how we're gonna continue to maintain reliability, resilience, et cetera. And I think it's, it's not just the fact that, that I'm pointing a finger at wind and solar as the problem. I'll, I'll tell you first and foremost, I believe the problem in Texas is the market structure. The way the market is structured in Texas, it does not incentivize people to build facilities to provide baseload power 24 seven. The market is structured to only reward the next electron in the next hour as you bid into the marketplace. And so what we've done is we've taken this market that was structured years ago that had reserve margins that were very robust and assured us of reliability. And then we've lived off the fat of that land. We've structured the markets to make it easy for those to just bid into them with low cost supplies like subsidized wind and solar. And now what we've got is we've got a whole lot of intermittent power that frankly doesn't deliver when we need it to. But we also don't have a market that rewards actual investments in long-term baseload power. And so we, that's part of what the conversation is going on regarding ERCOT and a number of other things. It's not just simply pointing a finger at one thing. We have to think of it holistically. Are you of that same belief when it comes to this energy transition that, yes, we're putting all these ideas to the market, but there's still no really detailed plan as to how this is all going to coincide and how this is all going to work together? So ask yourself the question. 
if wind and solar are so compelling in terms of low cost, why do we still need to subsidize the investments for them as, as a society? If it's a compelling business case, it's a compelling business case. But stop doing subsidies? You, you won't be building wind and solar. And that's, that's actually been proven. Every time it looks like maybe the PTC might not pass through, you'll see a dip in investments. And then all of a sudden, it'll come back up again, right? And again, it's part of the market structure. And think about it for a second. If you get production tax credits, what's the one thing you have to do? You have to run. If you run and produce, you get the production tax credits. If that's the case, you can bid your power into a marketplace like ERCOT for zero. For that matter, you can bid it in at a negative price to simply run so you can collect your production tax credit. Now, to me, that's perverted. Okay, that's that's not actually incentivizing the most cost effective situation, but it does incentivize technologies to be deployed into the marketplace. Why does somebody get a seven thousand dollar credit from the United States government to buy an electric vehicle? If it's such a great deal, why isn't it such a great deal? And so. We're, we're doing things to actually tip the lever. Now, I won't say all the time that's the wrong thing to do. Oftentimes, you need to create incentives for new technologies to go into the marketplace. But, you know, I, I, I think that's the real challenge here is, is we've got to really understand you know, my favorite quote of all time, Margaret Thatcher made this quote. She said, the best form of government is socialism until you run out of money. Everybody wants all of what they want. And I mean, you can take that into social programs. You can go down the line, right? And, and you know, when you got guys like Jerome Powell up in Dallas basically saying, how are we going to pay for all of this government spending? The simple answer, we're going to print more bills. Well, okay, is that sustainable? Is that really the way we want to drive our economy forward? I can only reflect back 20-some years ago when I was in Asia and was looking at the Asia boom that was going on. Apartment complexes, buildings were going up. It was all government-funded investment. I went back 10, 15 years later into places like Shanghai and, 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 uh, and Bangkok, and most of those buildings were empty. A lot of people had just not even gone there. I mean, it's, it's this artificial inflation, inflation of jobs creation and all this kind of stuff. It works short term. Longer term, there's a price to be paid. And I think that's the challenge that we've got, especially in energy. Are we making smart, long-term decisions? And at the same time, we cannot ignore the fact that emissions to the, to the world, climate change, I believe is a real challenge. It's a real part of our future. And it's not my generation. It's the one behind me and the one behind them. But I think what we owe them is real solutions not virtue signaling and patting ourselves on the back for doing things that aren't really going to move the needle. And, and that's really what the issue is, at least the way we see it at the university and me personally, is that we have to see a way forward that incorporates all fuels, all technologies, recognizing how much energy we're going to need as a society and being realistic around how to deploy technologies to decarbonize those kinds of technologies and fuels. If you don't do that, you're just kidding yourself. And that's the thing that gets me most concerned. So to that point, how does that happen then? Because right now, how do you tell a company like Exxon where, okay, so they've already lost two board seats, all right, by what is a shareholder that had what, less than 1% of the company, all right, because they didn't like what they were doing. 
A, where do you stand on that as far as telling a co- you know having a company tell them kind of how they're going to do things? How does that conversation take place, and who do you see as being kind of the thought leaders in helping na- us navigate these challenges that we've got when it comes to this energy transition? To your point, and we've been saying it on, on the Green Insider for a while now, because it is going to take all of the energy capabilities to make this thing happen. I think it gets back to creating real value for your shareholders. And, and that's not just earnings per share, but it's also value that the shareholder can see in the organization they're investing in over the next 10 years or so, right? I mean, it, you don't invest in somebody for what they've done. You invest in somebody for what you believe they will do. And in terms of the existential threats that exist to the hydrocarbon industry, the companies that are going to be leaders to be able to actually embrace the necessary technology changes, have the kind of products, goods and services that will be competitively differentiated going forward in terms of their carbon intensity, in terms of the way they do their operations, et cetera, Those companies will not only survive, but I believe they'll flourish. The ones that don't want to go there will hang on. They'll be like the railroad, if you will, and slowly but surely, they'll go away. Now, if you look at the projections for the demand for oil over the next 30 years, you can lay on top of that electric vehicles and all kinds of other new technologies And you can convince yourself that demand for oil will definitely go south. It's not going to be as much as it used to be, right? Now, how much exactly? Who knows? So what that tells you is the kinds of competitors that will be in the oil industry will be those that are leading. The ones that lag won't last. But it also says that if you're in that industry, You also have to have that kind of a diverse portfolio. But when you see announcements like Shell being the world's leading producer of natural gas-fired electricity by 2025, wow, that's a pretty bold statement, right? BP is going to lead the world in offshore wind development. Well, I don't know. If I'm a shareholder, I got to make a decision about Do I actually think the shares that I'm holding are actually going to be able to realize that? Or is that going to cause me to maybe not? (laughs) Right. And so these are all the questions that everyone's going to answer. I don't have an answer for you. All I can tell you is the market is amazing in the way it rewards performance. It will reward statements and signaling. That's for sure. But if you don't actually make good on it, you're going to have a problem and you're not going to be able to retain your shareholders. I think we are all here old enough to remember beyond petroleum. You remember that? Back in the early part of this this century, in 2000, Lord John Brown declared that BP was going to be beyond petroleum. They're going to get into hydrogen. They're going to do all this stuff, right? Well, a couple of years later, they had a new chairman and he wanted to get back to basics. Right. So I don't think this time around it's going to go that direction. I think a lot of it has to do with the demands of the marketplace, the new generation, the things we talked about earlier in this conversation. But but I, I do believe that the companies are trying to find a way to meet the share demands of the shareholders and not just the environmental demands, but the return expectations to hold that stock. Right now, the flip side of this is you've got a lot of people buying stock in renewable transformational technology that's nothing more than pixie dust, and and they're not earning anything. They're they're doing things that are aspirationally going to change the world, but at some point in time, you have to ask yourself, okay, so is that going to be what investors will rush to? And I think that's the tension that we're going to see. And and if you look at many of the investment houses around the world that are making comments today about running away from fossil fuel investment around the world, 
We've got trillions of dollars tied up in investment houses around the world in fossil enterprises. And given the fact, as we talked earlier, that renewables are what, about 5% of the total energy in the world, you're going to take all those trillions of dollars, pull them out of fossil and put them into renewables? I don't think so. There's not enough of a market. There's not enough of an appetite to do that. So I think that's where the sorting out's going to occur. It's not going to be any thoughts that I have. The market's going to speak very, very loudly. But those are the kind of indices that you look for. Those are the signposts that you'll see with these kinds of companies as they move forward. Regarding renewable energy credits, you know, the EPA allows somebody, I'm just going to make up a story, in New Jersey that wants to make their plant green buy an ERCOT wreck that's significantly cheaper than the New Jersey wreck. Yet, once they buy that wreck, it's equivalent to their usage in electricity in New Jersey, they get to claim that they're green. They can make that statement. Do you ever see that philosophy going away to where the government makes you, if you're in New Jersey, you have to have a New Jersey wreck to make that claim? Or do you think that's going to be here for a while to help people to be able to make the statements that they're green? That's Because that's such an easy way out. Yeah, I, I think the greenwashing movement is probably hit its peak. And I think that, that, that we're going to start to see some of that sort out. One of, one of the biggest areas that just drives me nuts is people spending a couple of bucks a ton to buy trees in Brazil as their carbon storage solution, okay? And so... Okay, you buy some trees and the trees grow and the CO2 gets absorbed. And then 40 years from now, somebody cuts the tree down and burns it, right? <laughs> you, you haven't stopped emissions. You've kicked the can a little bit, but you, you haven't really done anything other than put something in your annual report and claim to be green because the trees absorb CO2. And that's true. They do. But if you don't have a life cycle analysis and certification of these kinds of things that are now being introduced into the marketplace, and again, back to my earlier comment, we're in kind of the early days of this. I think a lot of the, a lot of the BS is going to get sorted out over time in terms of what people are doing and claiming and what they're putting in their, in their annual reports and sustainability reports. I think a great example of that is companies like... Uh, well, let's pick one. Let's pick Google for a second. Do you know 10 years ago who the largest consumer of coal-fired electricity was in this country? It was Google. With all those servers down in the Southeast consuming yeah. enormous quantities of electricity from coal-fired power plants, and yet they claimed to be pursuing carbon neutrality because they were buying carbon credits. Now, I don't know, carbon credits, I, I don't know exactly what that does to lower emissions in the atmosphere, but it certainly sounds good. It's like the guy that buys one, gets on an airplane and feels better about it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't actually understand that myself, but some people do it. But I think over time, what we're gonna see is those kinds of virtue signaling the non-quantified, not closed loop kind of approaches. Look, if you buy a tree and you cut it down and you put it into a, a biomass gasification facility, you capture the CO2 and you sequester it with CCUS, you've got a closed loop system and you've actually stopped emissions. You've absorbed it with the tree, you've, you've combusted the tree, you've captured the CO2 and you've sequestered it. That's, that's a certifiable process that actually closes the loop and prevents the emissions. If you don't do that, you're just kind of playing around and, and you keep waving your hands so that, you know, you, that somebody's maybe not watching both hands at the same time. And, and you create this illusion or the virtue signaling of your enterprise or whatever you're trying to accomplish. That goes back to the conversation around scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. It goes back to the conversation around the certification and the scorekeeping and the record keeping, which I believe will only become more and more rigorous going forward. And by the way, 
quite an industry for people that are in this business of doing the accounting and all this kind of stuff. It's uh, it, it's likely to be a growth industry, and and I think you'll find you'll find this industry grow and, and become a part of of what we're doing. Any projects that you guys are working on right now? Anything that that's kind of uh, that that's got your you know? I mean, obviously, I'm sure your interest has peaked quite a bit. But anything specifically right now that you guys are working on that you're or that you're proud of that you guys got going on as far as the work you're doing over at the center there over at U of H? We're particularly proud about a recent award that the Department of Energy uh, provided to the university through the Southern States Energy Board. Southern States Energy Board, which is uh, 16 different states and has well over 50 companies that are part of the Southern States Energy Board, uh, it renewed its contract with the Department of Energy uh, for the next five years. And in it, there's a declaration that the University of Houston was made the center for commercialization for carbon capture, utilization, and storage, not just for the Southern states, but for the entirety of the US. And so we're excited about the fact that we've got over 35 companies that have already joined our leadership team. Many of those companies are the usual suspects. You've mentioned Exxon, BP, Chevron, go down the list. The Southern Company, Phillips 66. I mean, there's a number of, of major enterprises, but we also have NGOs. We also have law firms. We also have management consulting organizations such as McKinsey. All of these organizations coming together, recognizing that we have commercialization challenges going forward. And when I say that, what we're really talking about is the transition that the Department of Energy recognizes that it's not just institutional research for science projects, but it's actually the commercialization challenges in the legal arena, the policy arena, the business arena. And of course, all of that is informed by engineering and science. We're excited about that because it's created a real enthusiasm in the marketplace. You saw the recent Exxon announcement about $100 billion in the Gulf Coast for a full-scale CCUS deployment. We're working very closely with them and many others in that regard to see this become realized. But we're also looking at other places around the country, in North Dakota, Wyoming, other places along the Gulf Coast, et cetera. I mean, this is a, this is a real important time where we're looking at the technologies that can actually make the difference, capture those emissions, but do it in a commercially accretive manner. Not just doing some things and then looking for government subsidies, but actually creating business processes and a business enterprise that can be sustainable. And, and if we don't do that, we're gonna, we're gonna miss the boat. And so we're, we're happy to be in that leadership position, but it's not just the University of Houston. We, we're outreaching to many other universities, creating a welcoming uh, opportunity. But the reason they picked Houston is that it's the energy capital world. This is where the companies are, this is where the emissions are, and this is where the geology is to be able to do this work. And so, you know, a sensible choice around using, you know, the tools that are available to the Department of Energy. And being a DOE alumni myself, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm delighted about that. And I'm certainly our faculty at the university is excited about it. And many of the uh, companies that are part of the university's energy advisory board are as well. I love throwing questions like this to old timers like you and Mike Niemer, who, you know, collectively you guys have 80 years uh, in the energy business. So I, I don't say that lightly in your career. And again, you've been around energy your entire life. Is this the most fascinating time in the world from an energy standpoint that you've ever witnessed? I'll say with with no reservations. Yes. But I'll also have to say that, you know, there have been many moments in my previous career where I've felt the same way. Right. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. I mean, 30 years ago, we developed a hydrogen pipeline system when I was at Prax Air to supply all of the refiners as we were moving toward the low sulfur diesel and gasoline regulations. We built hydrogen pipes, we built hydrogen uh, production facilities, and that business today is exponentially bigger in terms of the impact to the industry. 
you know, I had another wonderful opportunity to, to, uh, to be involved in expanding our Asia business and going over to Singapore and, and, and actually putting a lot of footprint in Asia for our industrial gases business. But the real thing was bringing the technologies, bringing those transformational capabilities to societies that didn't have them. I, I wouldn't give back any of that, but I, I would also say that where we are today, every bit, if not more so challenging. And, and the challenge isn't just simply doing the work, but it's many of the impressions that you just have expressed here. Concerns about educating people in the marketplace, making, making it clear about the choices we're making so that people aren't just simply overrun with noise from the media and, and many people that are looking for a buck uh, in terms of their thing that they're trying to promote, right? And, and it's, it's that challenge that's every bit as exciting as well, because I think people need knowledge. They need the education, they need the facts. And that's the platform that the university takes very seriously. And, um, and we hope to continue to expand on. Because you know what? When I hear that we need to lay off everybody in the oil and gas industry so that they can go to Arizona and make solar panels, and that's going to be the new job of the future, the green job, that's disturbing to me. Because I believe that the existing workforce and the talent and the capabilities that exist in the existing workforce are indispensable to make this transition. But these people need to be educated and integrated into the energy transition. We have to do a great job of workforce development for the existing workforce. And we sure as heck have to get students that are coming up in the workforce making choices and you don't have to move to California and work for Google to change the world. You can work in the hydrocarbon industry and decarbonize these industries and make a far greater impact in terms of the environment and the economy. Thank you once again for that, Mr. Charles McConnell. We, we told you he would not disappoint. Some fascinating insight from Mr. McConnell. And, and once again, we definitely want you to go check out what they're doing over at U of H. want to thank everybody once again for tuning in to the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. Shout out to Mike Niemer and the entire eRenewable team. We ask that you, if you listen to us, and of course, you listen, you know the deal. You go check us out on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, if you check us out on Apple iTunes, we ask that you leave us a five star review please do that why because we promise that you'll learn more from the podcast afterwards than you knew about renewable energy before you sat down this has been the green insider podcast powered by e-renewable we make going green easier